John chapter 11, Lessons in Raising the Dead, part 2. And as someone quipped a couple of weeks ago, we're not teaching you how to do that, but we're learning from the Lord Jesus about uh, resurrection and death and life and all of those things. And it's been our joy to be walking through the Gospel of John together. Most recently, we are looking at the events surrounding the death and resurrection of Lazarus. And last week, we saw how when the Lord got word of Lazarus' illness, he waited two days, really waited for Lazarus to die, in order that God would be glorified in the events surrounding Lazarus' death and his resurrection, his uh, reviving if we would. So we continue this today in Luke, or John, Luke, John chapter 11. Actually, I have Luke written down there. I don't know why. John chapter 11 and verse 17. If you would follow along as I read aloud, verses 17 through 27. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. May God add his blessing both to the Old Testament reading we heard earlier and the New Testament reading now. Would you join me once again in prayer? Lord, we believe that these words were inspired in the original autographs by your Holy Spirit. And we believe, Lord, for those of us who are in you, that the Holy Spirit indwells us. The same Spirit who inspired these words is able to and does in the hearts of believers open our eyes to these truths and Lord, convicts us and comforts us, and so we pray for that this morning. We pray that we would, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, be encouraged and strengthened in our faith by this means of grace, and as well, Lord, that we would come alongside of one another and encourage each other with these truths as well. And Lord, we know that there's a good possibility that there are those in our midst who do not know you. They've never turned from their sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I pray that as this messages preached this morning as the gospel is proclaimed in it, that those who do not know you would be convicted by the Spirit, be drawn to you by the Spirit, that you would give them the gift of faith and repentance, that they would believe this morning. Help us now, Lord, we pray. Pray that you would get me out of the way. Keep me humble. In Jesus' name, amen. When this life is one's only hope, one tends to find death so repulsive that they must put it out of their mind, hoping never to have to face it. Perhaps it will come as some sudden thing, and in their mind it will all be over. Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote the following in Crime and Punishment. Where is it I have read that someone condemned to death says or thinks 
an hour before his death, that if he had to live on some high rock, on such a narrow ledge that he'd only room to stand, and the ocean, everlasting darkness, everlasting solitude, everlasting tempest around him, if he had to remain standing on a square yard of space all his life, a thousand years, eternity, it would be better to live so that to die at once. Only to live. To live and live. Life, whatever it may be. Mankind who does not know God clings to this ledge as Dostoevsky describes it. Whatever the little sliver of life is, they cling to it with all their might, and this is life in face of certain death. This is, of course, no living at all. And it is mainly tucked away in the mind of the fool who says there is no God because he does not want to face it. But Jesus says, though one may die, if they believe in him, they will what? Live. They will live. In another place, he says he brings life, and at that, it is an abundant life. So it is with conviction and faith that the believer lives a full life, not denying death, but welcoming death as the doorway to life in the fullest sense when they will be in the presence of God forever. It is, as our main point says this morning, to hope in Christ is not to believe that death will not occur, but that God promises resurrection life for those who are united to Christ. You can find that main point written for you on the back of your worship folder if you're tuning in to the live stream this morning from FBC. It should have been emailed to you. But the main point, again, to hope in Christ is not to believe that death will not occur, but that God promises resurrection life for those who are united to Christ. And we understand that resurrection life in in, in a couple of different ways, do we not? We understand that first and foremost in, in this life now as that resurrection of spiritual life because we are born spiritually dead. Something that Jesus references here in this text as he speaks with Martha. But we also understand that as an already not yet reality for those who are in Christ because we also know that there is coming a day for all who are in Christ that um, they will be resurrected physically as well. Those who are in the grave first, it says in First Thessalonians, and those who are alive still in, in, in a kind of transformative resurrection to meet him in the air and to always be with him. So I want us to see this morning three observations from Jesus' arrival at Bethany Three observations from Jesus' arrival at Bethany. He said, Jason, you really are taking your time to get through this, um, uh, this event of, of Lazarus' resurrection. I'm doing that for a couple of reasons. It is strategic because I will be gone for the next two Sundays, and we will get to Palm Sunday when Jesus does resurrect Lazarus from the dead. And what a perfect Palm Sunday uh, I, uh, sermon uh, to, to look at Lazarus' resurrection, a, a reviving. He dies again to then look at the Lord Jesus' resurrection the following Sunday. But I do want us to see some very... The other reason is this. I want us to see some very specific things in in these pages that we may miss if we go too quickly through it. So today we see these three observations. Number one, the scenario surrounding Lazarus's grave. Look at verses 17 through 20 once again with me. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. 
So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. So why does John give us these details? It is a narrative, and so we understand the style of writing that John is doing here. He has given us the details because it is a narrative. But if we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for training in righteousness, for rebuke, for correction, uh, etc., what is uh, the purpose of this? Uh, Let's ponder some details here for a bit. John tells us that by the time Jesus and the disciples arrive, Lazarus has been dead and in the tomb for four days. And, and we heard from numbers this morning, one of the reasons for that is because anyone who is um, touching a dead body is considered unclean. They must go through a purifying ritual in order to um, be clean once again. And so if they wanted to participate in any sort of mourning for Lazarus, they would need to get uh, the body into the grave as quickly as possible. As uh, Andreas Kostenberger reports, later Jewish sources attest that Rabbinic belief that the death was uh, death was irrevocable three days after a person had died, and so there was some possible religious, uh, perhaps not uh, sound, but some religious reasons behind it as well. And so Lazarus is in the grave; he has been in the grave four days by the time that Jesus arrives, and uh, so there is um, a time of mourning, and these people want to be able to participate in that. We notice that the surrounding region of friends and family have already been notified, and they are there mourning with uh, Mary and Martha. The practice of mourning death was typically a longer process than ours, at least in the sense of formally. We know that if a loved one passes away, we mourn their death for many years, perhaps never getting over that to some degree or another. But in the sense of formal mourning, uh, there was a a, a, a process to it, a, a longer process in, the, in that sense. So again, thinking of what Kostenberger reports, he says the Talmud prescribes seven days of deep mourning and 30 days of light mourning. So we understand that there is a seven-day period of what we would typically do on, in one day. And some of that was uh, for sure for those who had touched the dead body to be able to be purified, to be able to mourn with them. But then we also see this longer length of time, this 30 days of, of lighter mourning uh, that would occur in this time period. And so we understand the context of this. Uh, now there has been mourning for four of these deep mourning days, but uh, there will be those who I'm sure will drift away from this mourning period, but many who are friends, close friends and family who will stay on and continue to mourn Uh, in their minds, continue to mourn the death of Lazarus for many days to come. We also see that Martha hears of Jesus' arrival and goes to meet him while Mary remains in the house. Uh, Church father John Christosom assumes that Mary is the more confident of the two, Martha the weaker of faith, and so therefore Mary remains in the house because she trusts in what Jesus uh, can do or, or could do. And Martha is uh, weaker in faith. Uh, But I think we see some fortitude of Martha's faith here. I think it actually becomes uh, part and parcel of of this main event that we're looking at today, this main point. John seems to use these elements of narrative to let us know that Lazarus is dead, dead. (laughs) That he is in the grave. This isn't some sort of a faked death, 
And therefore, this resurrection, this reviving that Jesus does of Lazarus from the dead is not able to be faked either. One thing that is certain of all humanity is death. For it has been appointed for each man once to die, and then what? The judgment. There are, no doubt, surprising deaths. Deaths that are are a shock to us. They, they us, uh, They take us by surprise. But death, ultimately, no matter how it comes, is no surprise in the end. Because all who are in Adam have this same fate, if you will. All who are in Adam will die. Romans 5, 12-14, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. And just to pause for a moment, and once again explains this, Paul is not saying that sin is not counted in any sense, when there is no law, he's saying there is no law there to, uh, to hold accountable. But what is there to hold accountable? To prove that every man is a sinner. Yet, this is why that yet is so important. Even though there was no way for sin to be counted according to the law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, from, from the beginning, from the fall to the time of the law. How is there proof that sin exists in the world? That, that all men are in Adam? Because death reigns. Death reigns from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. And here's the hope. Who was a type of the one who was to come. That is Christ, the second Adam. The one in whom we need to be found so that death no longer has its sting or its victory. It is the one who is to come who conquers over death. To hope in Christ is not to believe that death will not occur, but that God promises resurrection life for those who are united to Christ. Believer, do you fear death? Again, death is very real. It's very scary to one degree or another. It is appointed unto man to die once and then the judgment. But we have hope as those who are united to Christ in His resurrection. As those who are in Christ... As those who are now looking to him as our federal head. Adam at one time being the federal head in our fall. Jesus Christ being our federal head in redemption. To those who sit in our midst and have not trusted Christ. Again, I say to you, it is appointed unto man to die once and then the judgment There is one chance, and it is in this life before death. Death is imminent. Are you like the one in Dostoevsky's illustration who was just clinging to some patch of small land because that is better than perceiving of death or considering death? You would rather have the square foot of property and say life, life, life while ignoring death. And death this morning is staring you in the face as we come to this tomb of Lazarus and he has been dead for four days. My call to you this morning is turn from your sin and trust Christ. 
Well, we see here in this passage, as Martha runs to greet Jesus, we see her faith. It may not be a faith that is complete, in that she does not understand all of what Jesus is on earth to do, but she does have faith in God's Word. This is, I hope, a real encouragement to you this morning, dear ones, as you are those who are here in Christ. I hope that as you hear of Martha's faith, that you'll be encouraged. The faith of Martha in verses 21 through 24 as our second point. Look at verse 21 again with me. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What is the first thing we see about Martha's faith? She believes that if Jesus had been there, her brother would not have died. Why does she believe this? Because she has at least heard, if not also witnessed, the healing of those who were ill. The healing of those who had been sick. And we get a look at how far her belief goes when she states that she knows if Jesus asks anything of the Father, He will do it. She seems to understand the language of Jesus when He says He does what He sees the Father doing. Remember that earlier in the Gospel of John as as Jesus is having this conversation with the religious leaders. They're asking Him by what authority He does things. And He says, "I, I do it by authority of my Father who has sent me who I see doing things and I do the same things. However, to understand this as her believing that Jesus could raise her brother from the dead, as D.A. Carson suggests, this stands in contrast to verse 39. Look at verse 39. We'll, We'll get there eventually, but look at what is stated there. Jesus said, take away the stone Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. I think Carson's right. to understand. She's not necessarily understanding this as resurrection. In fact, even in what she confesses in a few minutes, we see that she believes in a future resurrection, but, but not necessarily that Jesus could raise uh, Lazarus from the dead at this moment. I, I love the King James version of verse 39, by the way. Surely by now he stinketh. It's just great. There's some beauty to that, isn't there? Carson then also suggests that verse 22 must be taken more generally. Martha is not only persuaded that her brother would not have died had Jesus been present, but even now in her bereavement, she has not lost her confidence in Jesus and still recognizes the the peculiar intimacy he enjoys with the Father, an intimacy that ensures unprecedented fruitfulness to his prayers. She is recognizing that. I think we should see this as her understanding of Jesus' closeness with the Father, a further explanation of her understanding of Jesus doing what he sees the Father doing. She understands, as Carson says, the intimacy he has with the Father. At this point, though, Jesus interjects something so sweet in verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, Jesus knows what he's about to do. She does not, which is clear by her response in verse 24. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection the last day. He is further encouraging her faith uh, in in this idea. But we are further encouraged as well by what we see her saying. She believes in the final resurrection. She believes in God's word. She is a good, conservative Jewish believer. Uh, remember that the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. 
Listen to Acts 23 and verse 8. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. The Pharisees were the religious conservatives of the day. They were legalists. They did not understand Jesus' message. They were just as guilty in putting Jesus on the cross as anyone else in their day. But they were conservative. They did believe in the resurrection. Where were some of the places that resurrection is taught in the Old Testament? In other words, this is their only Bible. This is all that Martha would have to depend on, plus the teaching of the rabbis. But what is this belief? Where does it come from? Well, listen to a few things with me, if you would. Psalm chapter 16 and verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. This is a Messianic psalm. And it is one that Peter recalls in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, stating that this cannot be David who wrote the psalm. It cannot be speaking of David because they know where David's body is. They can go point to the grave where David's body is. So Peter says this must be speaking of Christ in Acts chapter 2. So it's messianic in nature that that God will not allow his body, the, the Messiah's body, to see corruption. We also see instances of resurrection in the Old Testament. Elijah raises a young boy in 1 Kings chapter 17, and Elisha, his protege, in 2 Kings chapter 4. As a good Jewish woman, Martha would have known of these instances, but as best we could tell, she has not witnessed a resurrection. She understands that these uh, kinds of miracles, what Elijah and Elisha do, are very specific for a very specific time. They, they are, um, on, there are only periods of time like this throughout the Old Testament where there seems to be these sort of eruptions of sign gifts and, and miracles. However, she would have also been familiar with Daniel's words in Daniel 12 and verse 2. Listen to what it says there. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Therefore, she understands that there is a final resurrection that is yet to come. She understands Daniel's words as words that will come into fulfillment later on. So we should not minimize the faith of Martha nor discount her interactions here with Jesus. As I mentioned last week, the place of women in, their, in, in this world in the time of Jesus would be minimal. They were not regarded as worthy of being heard or taught, and yet they would have been instructed. And we see Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to Him teach, about which Martha complains. But Jesus states to Martha that one thing is necessary. As, as Martha is, is busy about the house, um, And Mary is sitting at his feet in that that event, when that occurs. Jesus says, Martha, Martha, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. What is the one thing? What is the good portion? It is for her, even as a woman, to sit at the feet of Jesus and, and learn from him. Here we see that Martha has faith. And she too has learned, and lest you misunderstand my even as a woman, I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, I'm meaning it in the sense of how they would have thought of it back then. And here we see Martha has faith. She too has learned, and what we will see is that she is learning right now 
as it were, at the feet of Jesus. For all of us, we should not be satisfied with a simple faith. In fact, I would argue that such argumentation or such verbiage misunderstands what the Lord is calling us to in His Word. Faith in Christ actually drives us to want deeper understanding for the sake of growth, yes, but also for the sake of worship. Do not be afraid of deep understanding that leads to the strengthening of our faith. By the way, side note, this morning we're going to start a Sunday school, equip our class on the Trinity. It will be hard. We're going to meet in here, by the way, just so you know, if you're planning on coming. And I hope you do. It will be difficult. It will be things we have to wrestle with in the Scriptures and theology as we distill things from the Scriptures. We do not need to be afraid of deep understanding that leads to the strengthening of our faith, that leads to greater worship. What does it mean to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn, but to sit at His feet and also worship Him? And let me say particularly to the women of our congregation, I want to encourage you to pursue the study of Scripture and theology. The good portion is not always to serve as Martha does, though there is beauty and godliness in that. Not that women are the only ones to serve, but the good portion is to sit at the feet of Jesus, to learn the theology of the Bible, and to not just do it for the sake of head knowledge, but for the sake of worshiping our triune, glorious, gracious, and merciful God. We must study the deep things of God's Word and to grow in that so that we deepen our faith, yes, to be strengthened in our faith, but to grow in love and worship of the God who has shown love to us through His Son. Again, for those who sit in our midst and have not bowed the knee to Jesus, a day is coming where it will be too late. Don't misunderstand me. You will bow your knee to Him, but it will be too late. It will be out of compulsion rather than out of repentance and love, out of grace and mercy. My call to you is to turn from your sin and trust in Christ today. Well, though Martha has spoken truth concerning the final resurrection, Jesus has more for her to learn, and she now proverbially sits at his feet, which is what we see in our third and final point, the instruction from Jesus and the confession of Martha. Jesus takes her right theology and applies it to himself. Look at verse 25. Actually, just to remind us, look at verse 24. Martha said to him, I know that he, that is Lazarus, will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Here's another one of these I am statements from the Lord Jesus, a a, a statement that ties him to the name Yahweh in the Old Testament, the name for God that Israel would have known God by. Jesus is unafraid to say that he and the Father are one, both in essence and in activity, uh, in John chapter 10 and verse 30. And here he says once again, I am. And not that any of the rest of the I am statements are insignificant. They, they, they sometimes are shrouded in metaphor, though you, I am the door, uh, I am the bread. He'll say later, I am the vine. But here he says, I am the ever-existing one. I am the resurrection and the life. 
It is not that there is just a resurrection to come. It is that Jesus is the embodiment of resurrection and life. He has previously said that he has the right to give life. He speaks of eternal life with Nicodemus and with the woman at the well, if you recall this. And we here see all the ways that the Gospel of John is tied up together and, and running through these very similar themes. In his conversation with the religious leaders in John chapter 5, he says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, <clears throat> excuse me, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Do you hear echoes of what Jesus says in John chapter 5 in His conversation here with Martha? For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. He who believes in the one who has sent him and believes the words of Jesus, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. He reiterates this truth with Martha in the rest of verse 25. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, one thing that is clear, that John has made abundantly clear to us in this passage by the first verses that he gives us in this narrative is that Lazarus has died. Lazarus is dead, dead. (laughs) He has been in the grave for four days. Jesus, speaking of eternal life for sure, but he will demonstrate this ability by raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus will show that he is able to impart eternal life by also showing that he is the resurrection and the life. As I mentioned last week, Lazarus, poor guy, does die again. But as Martha confesses, there is a final resurrection coming and Lazarus will be raised with all who believe in Christ. And so Jesus is emphasizing this ability of in this really who he is and saying he's the resurrection and the life and that whoever believes in him though he die shall live and everyone who lives and believes shall never die again this is speaking of eternal life of course they're going to physically die but their soul will live on with god until their body is resurrected. All of this is wrapped up in what Jesus is saying. And then as Jesus gives this instruction, he then asks Martha a very important question at the end of verse 26. Do you believe this? Now why is Jesus asking her if she believes this? Well, she's already made a statement of belief. I know that he will be resurrected at the last resurrection. I believe he'll rise again. Jesus then takes that, embodies himself in resurrection and life, and applies the truth of that in a gospel sense, and now says to her, after hearing this instruction, do you believe this? And Martha's confession is so stellar. Look at verse 27. She said to him, 
Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, there are two ways that I want us to think about this. Two ways I want us to think about this. I want us to think about her confession proper. What is it that she's confessing? And then I want us to talk about the importance of confessing belief as a part of application for us. Her confession proper is this. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. A a recognition of his lordship. Uh, He has said, I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, uh, This is a recognition of that I am Yahweh language. Yes, Lord. In the days of Jesus, uh, there was a saying that would go around in Rome that Caesar is Lord. That was the confession that was supposed to be made as one would go about their business. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is God, in other words. And as the church becomes established, this is actually a a reason for persecution in the early church. Because they would say, no, no, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Here we have an early confession of Martha. Yes, Lord. Then she says, I believe that you are the Christ. She believes that he is the Messiah. This is dripping with Old Testament overtones and theology. There has always been, from the early age of Israel, a hope and an expectation of one who would come as Messiah. As Revelation progressively unfolds in the Old Testament, there is the hope that Messiah would come into the world. That there there would be one who is the anointed one who would rescue Israel. Martha says, yes, Lord, you are Lord, and you are Messiah, you are Christ, and you are the Son of God. What the Jews have wanted to kill him for saying about himself, Martha believes. Remember, just previously in John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. They picked up stones yet again to stone him. John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. They picked up stones to kill him. Why? Because he claims to be one with God. He claims to be the Son of God. To claim to be the Son of one in the sense that Jesus is saying this is to say to be of the same essence as. They want to kill him for this. And yet Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. That's why I think it's appropriate for us as often as we do to Speak of Jesus as the Lord, Jesus Christ. The Lord in the sense of Yahweh, Jesus as his earthly name, Christ as his mission, his Messiahship. Who is coming into the world, she says. Interesting statement. Who is coming into? Well, he's already in the world. So why is she saying, who is coming into the world? There he is. I mean, he's standing right in front of her. Well, this recalls John chapter 1 and verse 9 to us. The true light, which gives light to everyone, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of Jesus, was coming into the world. He was sent by the Father to reveal God to mankind and as a result to show them their sinfulness and need of Him. 
Jesus is the light who is coming into the world. And I think that uh, perhaps uh, Martha is even saying here, uh, you are coming into the world, you're shedding light upon who you are and helping me understand and see more of who you are. Listen to what D.A. Carson says in his commentary. Her confession is neither mere repetition nor the pious but distracted and meandering response of someone who has not followed the argument. Her reply carries the argument forward, for she holds that one who is the resurrection and life must be by virtue of the fact that he is God's promised Messiah. Her firm, uh, I, uh, her, her firm belief reflects that state of her confident trust. Her faith is a rich mixture of personal trust and of confidence that is certain, uh, think, believes certain things about Jesus are true, that He is the Christ, that He is the Son of God, that He is the one who has come into the world. This is a magnificent confession by Martha. And it strikes at the heart of the Gospel. Jesus is who He said He is. Jesus is the Good Shepherd. Jesus is the doorway into the sheepfold. Jesus is the bread come down from heaven. And all who would be reconciled to God must be reconciled to God through Him. Martha confesses what Jesus teaches her and says that she believes it. There's an importance to her confession. There's also an importance to confessing belief. Why is confession so important? Why should we emphasize a confessional faith? Why do I or another elder pray a part of what we confess every Sunday morning? Well, we need to know and hold to what we believe. Think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, right before he summarizes the gospel. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, listen to what he says, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Notice he reminds them, they received it, they stand in it, they are being saved by it, if they hold fast to it. Why do we think a confessional faith is important? To confess what we believe, to have written down what we believe. We need reminders of things that we need to hold fast. We need reminders of the things we need to hold fast to. Here is what we believe. We can put that down. We, we outline the gospel. This is what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. He, after he says, this is what you need to hold fast to, he then outlines the gospel in a confessional form. He says, we believe this, we believe this, just as the Scriptures said, we believe this, just as the Scriptures said. This is what we believe. We think of the need of confessions for things we need to hold fast to. We think of the need of confessions because of heresy. Think of the Nicene Creed and later the Chalcedonian Creed. They were crafted because of heresy concerning the deity of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so the church comes along and says, this is what we believe. Not because we have decided it, but because this is what God's Word says. And we need to distill these truths down so that we can understand and Hold fast to what we believe. 
Dr. Bob Gonzalez writes this, A creed or a confession of faith is the church's doctrinal standard in written form, identifying and expounding those doctrines of Scripture that are essential for salvation, as well as those doctrines of Scripture that are necessary for the church's spiritual well-being, end quote. Now, as we talk about Martha's confession of, of her faith, obviously that's a part of Scripture. But even as we think about distilling down these truths and how important that is, it's, it's necessary to say a confession does not stand over the Scripture, but is derived from Scripture and is essential for believers in order to understand what it is we believe and to publicly confess that belief in structural form. There are lots of places in Scripture where we find that. And we too are to take those truths and to distill them down and say, this is what we believe. This is part of instruction. Even as we see Jesus instructing Martha, part of our instruction is as we learn from the Scriptures to be able to say, this is what we believe. Clearly what we see Martha doing here is confessing as she learns more about who Jesus is. She is putting together from what she has witnessed and what, she has, what Jesus has told her here something that is essential for us to confess as well, which is Jesus the Christ is the Lord. He is the Son of God who has come into the world and is the light of men. So to those of us this morning who sit here, I want to ask, do we believe that? Is it something that we believe at a point in time or is it something that we hold to? We don't cling to a small piece of real estate on the edge of a cliff with, the, uh, with a cliff with the ocean rushing around us just clinging to life, not thinking about death. No, we cling to the Lord of the universe. cling to his promises and we confess that we believe that he is the Lord that he has died on behalf of sinners and that he rose again and that we too will join him in that resurrection the light he shines is that which sheds light on God and man who are we we are sinners in need of redemption who is he he is the resurrection and the life If you've not trusted that, my call to you, my plea to you is to turn from your sin and trust in Christ, who is the Lord, he is the Son of God, he is the resurrection and the life. If you are one who confesses him as Lord, are you continuing to trust him and continuing to learn about him and love him and grow in your devotion and worship of him? Are you walking with others in this local assembly and pointing them to the truth of the Scriptures that we confess, saying, Brothers and sisters, do not forget the faith that was delivered once for all that we confess as our faith. Which doesn't say, look to the confession. To confess it says, look to Christ. Look to the Christ of Scripture. Know Him. Grow in your faith. Walk with Him daily. Love Him. Worship Him. Because He is who He says He is. If you're struggling, please come and see me or one of the elders we would love to encourage you in that walk. If you're one who is not sure that you 
know the Lord, please come and speak with me or, or someone else here. Please, 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 we want you to know what it means to be in Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we do confess that you are the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world to rescue sinners, to make much of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And if we are in you, we confess that as you were raised, we will be raised. And when we see you, we will be like you. Lord, we long for that day. But while we're here, help us to remember that we cling to the God of the universe. Help us to find our hope in the truths that we confess because they are scriptural. And help us to point one another as we struggle through this life together. And I pray for the one who does not know you who could be in our midst this morning. They will repent and believe the gospel. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.